When he speaks of what happened to his daughter Shelley, Ed Sykes said, It was a crash course in good and evil. In 1986, when Shelley was 19, she was working as a waitress in Galveston. The night she disappeared, she left work and headed to her boyfriend's house, but Shelley never made it there. But Shelley's story isn't one of what happened to her. There were plenty of witnesses to her abduction that night. But it's always been the question of where she is now. This is her story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by guest reader Gus Burney. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. Vanessa, you're Canadian. Yep. You're giving me this look like, where is this going? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yes. Yes. Do you know who else is Canadian? Who? Margaret Atwood. Yeah, I knew. (laughs) (laughs) I did know that. (laughs) Okay, great. You know, as a Margaret Atwood fan, Mm -hmm. I I do have a giant Margaret Atwood tattoo. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about Margaret Atwood in regards to this episode. So it is all related, I swear. (laughs) There's this Margaret Atwood quote... I mean, it's not exactly what she said, but it got cleaned up and kind of summarized. And I just was going to check to see if you had heard it before, which is, men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will kill them. I don't think I've heard that before. So now I'm curious, what do you mean they cleaned it up? It was like a longer quote. So oh, it's just okay. been like really like condensed. Not that Margaret Atwood was like swearing or right. something. That's not what I meant. Like, no. was it juicy? No. No. <laughs> She's like, this is the condensed version. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Cleaned up. I'm like, was it like curse words and men are afraid women will fucking laugh at them? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I just, I was thinking about that quote a lot as I was making this episode. And so we should probably like discuss that as we go. Okay. So I'm keeping this in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Margaret Apple. Okay, so really to set the stage for this episode, we're going back to the area of Texas that's often referred to as the Texas Killing Field as part of a series that I just decided that we were doing about missing and unidentified women from there. Now, this episode builds off our episode about Audrey Cook and Donna Prudhomme, who were once unidentified homicide victims who were found in League City, Texas. They were located in a field along with two other murder victims, Heidi or Heidi, and Laura Miller. And that specific field is often also called the Texas Killing Fields. So there are, wait, there are two Texas Killing Fields? Right. There's like this specific field that these four murdered women were found in. Right. That's called the Texas Killing Fields. Okay. But then often like this entire area is called the Texas Killing Fields. So there's like a specific small part, but then now it's just like widespread right it grew it grew that's terrible that is very alarming so now you don't have to listen to that episode to understand this story but i do encourage you to check it out because it paints a broader picture about this area and why this area was given this name to summarize though and vanessa already knows this 
There have been many murders and abductions of women in this section of Texas, specifically in the areas surrounding I-45 in the region between Houston and Galveston. Are we going back to Houston or Galveston today? Yes. So we're going to be closer to Galveston. Okay. This is the story of Shelly Sykes, who was 19 years old when she went missing from Galveston, Texas, on the night of May 24th, 1986. I want to mention here my thanks to Catherine Casey, who wrote the book Deliver Us that includes much of this information of Shelley's early life that I'm about to share. And the book itself is a broader look at not just the missing and unidentified women in this area, but the murders as well. So I really do suggest that for further reading. Shelley was born on September 2nd, 1966. She lived with her family, which included a sister in Texas City, which is in Galveston County, just across from Galveston Island. As a child, she was involved in a range of dance activities and took lessons in ballet, tap, and jazz. Apparently, she also deeply loved animals and, like me, was prone to collecting them and bringing them home. You do not have that large of an animal collection. I do not, mostly because my husband it's true. is allergic and stops me. But I was hoping that I would, I would get another puppy soon. I think your dog needs a puppy. My, my my puppy needs a puppy. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. It's fair. I have to add this in because this seems like such a Texas thing, but at some point her dad brought home an armadillo for Aww. her and she named it Lone Star. The whole thing is so Texas and adorable. Right. But also I really do have to say like this is a do not try this at home. Like no one bring home armadillos because like they don't make good pets also, they carry Hansen's disease, which is, you know, most people know it by leprosy. So, like, okay, so you talk, you talked me out of it. Yeah, no, no armadillos. We're not driving to Texas to, to get an armadillo, Vanessa. But if I ever got a a, a, a toy armadillo, maybe I'd name it Lone Star. There you go. By the time she got to high school at Texas City High School, Shelly was kind of doing it all. She continued dancing. She was the assistant drum major. She choreographed routines for the drum majors. She had a boyfriend who was a year younger than her, and she was just generally well-liked. She was voted Miss Spirited, Most Talented, and Best Personality of her senior class. She sounds like an amazing girl. She does, Yeah. And when she graduated, she started attending University of Texas at Austin, which is about 200 miles away from her home. According to her dad, she took music and dance classes that first semester and really didn't seem interested in other courses. This isn't surprising because dance had been such a big part of her life, and her ultimate goal was to open a dance studio. And I think those initial months at college were likely hard for her. She was away from home. Her boyfriend was still in high school and driving to see her on the weekends. Soon to Stember, she called her dad and asked if it was okay if she took a semester off. I don't know how many of our listeners know this, but I taught at a university before ending my time there to write full-time. So first, shout out to my former students who are listening. And I did that work for like close to 15 years, and that means I saw so many students go through similar decisions that Shelly did. Transitioning into college is so hard. It's like this major life change, and it's pretty normal to reevaluate what they're doing. The first year is actually one of the hardest in terms of retention for universities. So we'll see someone stay for a few weeks. Sometimes they'll like push forward to that first semester. Sometimes they'll quit in the first year, but like it's a major decision point. So I'm not surprised. I saw plenty of people like Shelly. It's such a hard time in life though too, because I mean, they're so young. It's their first time away from home. 
And then also like, just think back to like being 17 or 18 and having to decide what you're going to do as an adult for the rest of your life. Yeah. It's crazy pressure to put on a kid. Yeah. So like, I would have to coach kids all the time. Like, you know, your 18 year old self does not have to determine the rest of your life. Like whatever you do now, like does not have to be the thing, but it's hard just like having all of these things. So I'm not surprised to hear stories where this happened because it's actually really common. And her dad said he was disappointed in this, but he understood. And so she moved back home to Texas City to live with him and his second wife, Denise. I'm glad he was accepting of that. Yeah. A lot of parents aren't that cool. Yeah. And so Shelly started working as a waitress at Guido's on Galveston Island. This restaurant still exists today, probably because it's a Galveston institution. They've been open since 1911, and it's a hotspot for locals and tourists alike. And so on Memorial Day weekend, Shelly was scheduled to work, and you have to think about how incredibly busy it must have been on a Saturday night, Memorial Day weekend, at this restaurant. Shelly and her boyfriend had made plans, but... They talked around nine something that night and she said she'd rather stay in and go to his house after work. Technically, I guess his parents' house since he was in high school and lived at home, but their plan was they were going to watch movies. Shelly punches out at 11.34 p.m. and leaves work to begin her drive to her boyfriend's. My best guesstimate is that this drive should have taken her about 20 to 30 minutes to get there, but she never arrives. This isn't the first young woman to not arrive home after leaving work that yeah. we've discussed in just the short time we've been doing this yeah yeah it seems like it kind of reinforces that idea that like a young woman out alone at night isn't always safe we're gonna get into like ways we start categorizing and thinking about things like this that are happening right? okay yeah because i think we start adding these things to things to fear rather than like, how do we change these things? Yeah. And so when she doesn't get there, when he expects her, her boyfriend calls the restaurant only to find out that she had already left. And worried about her, he gets in his car and he drives the route she'd have taken looking for her car. She usually exited I-45 at the frontage road ramp and then followed a feeder road to Texas 146 or Texas 3. So he drove those routes looking for her. But it's dark. It's likely hard to search and drive at the same time. And so he does a really smart thing and heads home and tells his dad. The two of them head out, this time with his dad driving and the boyfriend looking. And around 2 a.m., they finally spot her 1980 blue Ford Pinto on the northbound feeder road, about half a mile from the Galveston Causeway. It's pulled off the road about 18 inches from the pavement and in a marshy area. So it's actually in about like a foot of mud. So probably not a place she would park voluntarily. Right. And so they immediately get out. They start checking the vehicle. And I really honestly can't imagine what it must have been like to come across this scene. Her car had a broken driver's side window and there was what was described as a large quantity of blood inside. That's not looking good. No. And instead of it looking like Shelly had broken the window in an accident or had to break the window to get out, it looks like someone broke the window to get in because most of the glass is on the inside of the vehicle. And also inside her car are Shelly's things. Her purse, her waitressing apron are in there. There's $53 in tips. There's a change of clothes. There's a shoe. Her keys were still in the ignition. And outside the car, there are her footprints, 
one with a shoe print and one without. Shelley's boyfriend and his father drive to Texas City Police Station to report this. They told an officer there what they'd seen, but he didn't respond. Like, legit said nothing. How could he not respond to this? Right, like, it's it's not like he just, like, brushed them. There was just, like, zero response. But, 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 it's, yeah. So they spoke to someone else, and they're like, hey, maybe you can contact local hospitals. And that officer responds, I guess so. Who is this officer? This is awful. Well, that's two officers. Two now. Yeah. There's blood. There's broken glass. Like, mm-hmm. okay. I, yeah. So they're not getting the response they're needing, so they go to the Galveston County Sheriff's Department, and that department agrees to send out an officer to meet them at her car. And the responding officer from Galveston County treats this like an accident scene and writes up a report on it, but doesn't really seem inclined to do much else. He suggests that she may have been injured in an accident and had maybe wandered off looking for help. Then where is she? Then where is she? And why aren't you concerned about that? And why didn't she bring her other shoe? Right. And how did she break her window inside? All of these things, yeah. right? And so Shelly's boyfriend and her father are asked to move the vehicle. Because this is an accident. But, but it's a crime scene. Right. And that's what so they're... So now they're sitting in it? Well, no. So okay. they're pretty certain what they're seeing is a crime scene. So when a tow truck pulls up, they ask him to treat it. Like, this is one. Okay, so they, these two, well, a man and a teenager are protecting the inside of this car. And the police aren't. Well, as best they can. I mean, it's clear later on that that because this wasn't treated as a crime scene, that, like, some of it was compromised. Yeah. It would have been much more compromised had they not spoken up. Right. For his part, at least, the responding officer will say later... It was handled as an accident scene, not a crime scene. If I had to do it over again, I would have secured the crime scene immediately upon my arrival. Of course he's going to say that. Seriously. Seriously, yeah. 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 Meanwhile, her dad, Ed, he'd been away on a fishing trip for the long weekend when he got word that she was missing. And while he was trying to get back, his wife, Denise, starts making phone calls to local hospitals trying to see if she had, in fact, been admitted somewhere. But no one has anyone matching her description being checked in. It's actually not until noon the next day, so Sunday, that they're able to report that she was missing. It's a little crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's finally when air and ground search is launched. And Sheriff Joe Max Taylor and Galveston County Organized Crime Control Unit Sergeants Tommy Hansen and Wayne Kessler start working the theory that her car had been forced off the road and an assailant had punched out her window while she was locked inside her car. So exactly what? Exactly what you would think happened. Right. Yes. Because of this, they start calling area hospitals as well, but this time they're looking for someone who may have come in with arm or hand injuries from breaking in the window. And when this starts getting picked up by the news, it's also when people start coming forward to say that they may have seen something. There seem to be a few witnesses who saw different parts of what happened to Shelley that night. Um, These witnesses come forward, you know, within the week and sometimes months later. So if we kind of take all their stories together and merge it into a narrative about what they saw that night, they saw Shelly's car being pursued by a white or blue pickup truck before being forced off the road. No one reported this? No. 
Once there on the side of the road, a man got out of the truck and wrapped a t-shirt around his fist before hitting her driver's side window. When that didn't work, he then stepped back and kicked the window with his foot. People saw all of this. Yes. Okay. One of the motorists who stopped, a driver, he said he saw a man gripping a woman by the hair and she was screaming, please help me, please help me. The driver of the station wagon said that the man holding her looked at him and said, you motherfucker, you better get out of here. This is my old lady and I'll blow you away. And then the man moved his hand behind his back and fearing the man had a gun, the driver left. And when the driver left, he should have called the police. Exactly. But he said he trusted the man's word that this was a domestic incident, which why wouldn't whoa, you report whoa. that? Yeah, whoa, we're yeah. trusting that the man is just beating up his old lady? Right. And you're not reporting that because it's... Okay. okay. Is that okay? Yeah. And also he said it, quote, unquote, looked like a bad scene. What? I know. Okay. He didn't want to get involved in... Okay, people, please get involved. And so witnesses also saw Shelly being taken out of her vehicle and forced into the truck. None of the witnesses reported what they'd seen until, like, again, after the news came out about her disappearance. They all, again, assumed this was a domestic incident, and it really wasn't any of their business. So it's not just the station wagon driver, it's all the other people who saw stuff going down that night. How can we believe that a domestic incident isn't any of our business? Right. Like, oh, it's okay for you to uh, hurt someone as long as you're in a relationship with... I don't even know. Right. Like, uh, It's between you, so we're not going to, like... Yeah, so this is why... Protect you. You know, this is exactly what happened in the Lori and Linda story. I feel like that was on a more innocent... Yeah, like, well, it, so they, In a more innocent space for those bystanders. Yes, it, they thought it was like a a spat and so that no one was getting involved yeah but it wasn't yeah. like violence like with hair ripping out right i don't know yeah and so later shelly's stepmother denise would say out of all this that's what angers me the most how could anyone watch someone being hurt and not do anything about it well i think she's i think she's allowed to feel that way yeah and within a week, they're able to release a sketch of the white male witnesses saw, describing him as, are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Being between 5'9 and 6'1 hmm. and weighing 150 to 180 pounds hmm. with dark color length hair that was stringy or curly, possibly receding, and is well tanned or has an olive complexion. He's also unshaven. So it's any man. Basically. It's any white guy yeah it's like oh he's below average height to above average height right yeah okay yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so some of the missing persons cases that we've talked about are ones where there's really few clues to what happened to the person but some are like shelley's where there's a pretty clear chain of events and her parents and investigators are fully aware of the danger she's in so while investigators are looking for her, her family does what it can and starts churning out thousands of missing persons flyers. To support this, there's a benefit concert that's held on June 5th, and not long after that, there's a car wash, there's t-shirt sales. Later, all three of her parental figures will say this work gives them a feeling that they're doing something. There's also a reward that's offered, and this reward is boosted to $50,000 for just 12 hours on June 5th. So that was open for 12 hours yes why so 
there's this belief that Shelley could be held captive somewhere and that by having this tightened time frame of this significant reward that it could motivate someone to come forward more quickly. And her mom emphasizes that her safe return is the most important thing. She told reporters, we don't care about prosecution, we just want her back. But those 12 hours passes without any word from Shelley. They decide to get rid of some of the time limit and leave the reward up. So still though, no one comes forward. This story is stupid. Human error everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll be back in a moment. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events... On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. By July 13th, her family had managed to get 300,000 flyers distributed to 38 states. But the days, then the weeks, then the months pass, and her family is still waiting for her to come home. Is that likely at this point? I mean, we know it's not based on this, but like in cases like this, we've talked about before how normally girls aren't kept alive that long, right? Well, you know, her... Her family has some hope because they're they're still getting some information as this is going on because like eight months into the wait, another witness comes forward to say that there wasn't just one man there that night with Shelly, but two. And like, this is the first time that I think there was any indication of a potential of two suspects in her abduction. So 
they're getting this kind of news and it's not exactly clear how police handle that kind of information. But her mother does speak to reporters and say that the police have been talking to her regularly and reassuring her. And she says, the detectives tell me not to give up hope. They told me stories of girls being sold into prostitution. So it's really clear that there, like, at least is some belief that she could have been trafficked. Okay, yeah. I always, I don't want to say I always forget about that as an option, but it just, it still is, like, mind-blowing to me that that even happens, you know? Yeah, it's I mean, just disappearing into trafficking. So yeah. it's just, and I mean, it does, but it's usually like quite targeted, right? And the it's, ones that yeah. we've talked about. Yeah, so it's like we're we're not talking that trafficking of particularly stranger abductions is happening. Not everyone's at risk for this, but this is a, a conversation that was happening, and I I think it's interesting to think about kind of the history of this because when we talked about Dorothy Arnold who went missing in the early 1900s. They were also saying, like, well, maybe she was trafficked, mm-hmm. right, as, like, somewhat of a reassurance in that case, too. Right. On the year anniversary of her disappearance, newspapers go and interview her mom and her sister to get an update on her case. By that point, her father and stepmother had moved to Austin. Now, he was still searching for Shelley, but he'd really pulled back from the papers at that point. And her mom talked about how supportive the community had been and how important it had been for her to have a core group of friends around her. And then the article talks about how, you know, on this one-year anniversary, they're using it to send out new flyers with updated information. For their part, the Galveston County Sheriff says that they've had two full-time officers working on this case, and they'd done a 1,000 interviews, 10 polygraphs, and taken 46 sets of prints, and they'd run... 2,450 plate numbers off the partial plate number witnesses were able to give them. They eliminated all of the potential vehicles from consideration that had the same partial plate number. In late June, just a month from the year anniversary of her disappearance, an unemployed laborer, who I'm going to call Kay, walks into a bar in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and sees Shelley's face looking out at him from her missing persons flyer, likely one of the many flyers that the Sykes family had distributed across the country. Now, because you're using an initial here, I'm guessing Kay is our suspect? Yes. Okay. Suspicious. Suspicious. Vanessa's on to me. So Kay heads back to his motel room at the Ace Motel in El Paso, Texas, and he makes a suicide attempt before calling 911. When police arrive, they find a suicide note on him that reveals he kidnapped a woman in Galveston. This note also implicates his friend, who I'll call Z. On Thursday, January 25th, they bring Kay into questioning in El Paso before taking him on to Galveston for more questioning. Kay says that he and a friend, Z, were smoking marijuana laced with PCP on East Beach in Galveston on May 24th, 1986. After, they noticed Shelley driving down Broadway, which is kind of the main street you take to get off the island. They then followed her across the causeway to the mainland and forced her car off the road. So are they blaming the marijuana laced with PCP? So they definitely are attributing it to being high. Or Kay is, and his recollections of that night are spotty and kind of change course, which we'll talk about, but yeah. Okay. And Kay says that once she was in the truck, they drove her around for a few hours before bringing her to his parents' house in Backcliff, Texas, which is about 30 miles away from Galveston. 
Kay says his friend Z was part of this, so he agreed to wear a wire and go talk to Z. The meeting takes place later that day near Z's home in Seabrook. Despite Kay's attempts to get him to talk, it doesn't work, and so police move in and arrest him anyway. From 9 p.m. until the early morning hours, they question both men before letting them go to sleep in their cells. Both men admit to burying her, but neither would admit to killing her. Specifically, and this is really a hard detail to share, Kay didn't know if she was alive or dead when they buried her. That's really awful. Kay does agree to lead investigators to her burial site on his parents' property, but in exchange, he wants one thing, and that's to talk to his father, specifically at his father's house. So they bring Kay out there, and he meets with his father for about an hour and a half. Now, police need this information from them. They are searching an area with hounds because this is several square mile area that has woods, it has pastures, it really wasn't easy terrain, and they hadn't really been successful in locating her on their own. But by the time he's done speaking with his father, Kay says he couldn't remember where she was. So Kay doesn't really seem to know a ton. Like, he doesn't know what condition she is when she was buried. Like, he doesn't know where she is. Like, how is this going to help? Well... I think it's important to know that as we continue this story, both K and Z realize that they've been caught. And as they're kind of talking to investigators and telling their side of the story, neither one wants to take responsibility. Mm. Neither of them is being fully honest. And so as we kind of progress, we're going to see how that plays out. But they're not trustworthy. Whether or not they remember or not, I don't know. But... They're really trying to protect themselves here. That leaves authorities to keep looking for her, but Sheriff Joe Max Taylor says it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And without her body, the assistant DA is refusing to move forward with murder charges. He says, we need a body for murder charges. We're researching the law and looking for evidence of it, meaning murder charges. Mm -hmm. But we're looking at aggravated kidnapping right now. In their first court appearance, investigators play the tapes of the interrogations of both K and Z. Z says in his recording that they made a decision to run her off the road after she made a rude gesture at them. So basically, she gave them both the finger. Great reason to run someone off the road. Right, and that's like, I actually want to pause there because there's a lot of discourse about why people listen to true crime, in particular why women do, because anything women do is open to speculation and analysis, right? But I was talking with someone recently about how she feels that true crime basically gives her a way to think about how to be safe in the world. Sort of like the roadmap to not get murdered. And I think it's really possible that someone like would be thinking like, oh, if she hadn't done that, hadn't given them the finger, she might have made it home. But like, that's just the stories that one, we tell ourselves, but also it's the stories that they're telling, right? Like that's their rationalization for what happened. If it wasn't that, I'm sure he would have rationalized this happening for some other reason. Right. But it's almost, it is almost like we want to, like, as women want to think, okay, she did something that caused that harm to herself. But also, like you said, the man that's basically looking for any excuse to, to do something. Right. And so like, you know, we're trying to be like, oh, okay, like how, not, not that it was her fault for doing it, no. but like if I didn't, if I don't do that, maybe I'll stay safe. Like right. if this, if something happens to me in the future where I'm encountering men like this, maybe I shouldn't give them the, f the finger because something could happen to me. But like, that's, we're hearing 
the survivor killers side of the story where they get to justify why they did it. So C claims that they were in his pickup truck and after they forced her off the road, he thought that they would be taking her to the hospital because she was moaning and in pain. Z says K pushed Shelly down on the floor of the truck. He claims K was driving the truck that night and took them in instead to Spillway Park, where K dragged her out of the truck and into the truck bed. He says that K was out there for a while and it looked like he was shaking her like he was trying to wake her up. Z says that he then slid into the driver's seat, it is his truck after all, and drove them to K's parents' house where K got a shovel. They then drove to a trailer that K had been renting where Z ate a TV dinner hmm. and K left. He says that when K got back, Shelly was no longer with him. Shelly leave with Z? No, this is his side of the story. He's like, I just sat down to dinner. I'm eating my TV dinner and he left with her and he came back without her. And I don't know what happened. So according to Z, he's just minding his own business, having his TV dinner in the trailer. Right. And Kay takes off with Shelly. And when Kay gets back, Shelly's no longer there. Yes, that's Z's side of the story. Okay. Like, it's also really weird to just be, like, casually eating a TV dinner. Right. What is it? He's just eating a TV dinner. Okay. In September, a jury comes back with indictments against the pair for aggravated kidnapping. They're leaving the door open for them to be charged with murder at a later date. And when this finally goes to trial in January of 1988, Kay's side of the story is heard. He claims that he waved at Shelly, but she gave him the finger in response. And he thought it was funny, but that Z was driving and that he flipped out about this. So are we kind of like just blaming each other at this point? That's the entirety of the story of these two. And he says that he doesn't know what led to Shelly's car being off the side of the road, whether they hit her or not, but that Z was banging on her window. And he claims he ran out towards the road to get away from it. And then a station wagon stopped and he told the driver that his friend was flipping out. He says that the people in the station wagon left saying that they would get help. That's not really what the person in the station wagon said. Mm -mm. He says that he didn't try to enter the vehicle until he looked inside and saw her injured inside. Despite this statement, I need to make clear that Kay's blood was inside Shelly's car. And Kay did have scarring around his wrist that investigators believe came from this attack. Things aren't matching up with Kay's story. No. And Kay says a Chevy Blazer stopped, but he sent them away saying this was a domestic dispute. That checks out. Kay's claim is that it was Z who carried Shelly to the truck. But the witness from the blazer said that the same man carrying Shelly is the one who said, this is a domestic dispute, which means that would have been Kay who took her to the vehicle. Later, when asked about her being in the back of the truck, Kay says that he got on top of her but couldn't remember if he raped her or not. He says he backed off when he heard her whimpering. How would he not remember? He's blaming being high on PCP, basically. These guys seem to blame a lot of things. They're blaming her. They're blaming drugs. They're blaming each other. Right. And so in his story, Kay's version of this, it's Z who goes and gets the shovel and he just goes and takes a nap. So there are these two people who knew what happened to Shelley Sykes and neither of them really wants to fully tell the truth. 
On April 12th, 1988, though, two years after she went missing, Kay is convicted of aggravated kidnapping and sentenced to life in prison. On June 22nd, in a separate trial, they found Z guilty of aggravated kidnapping. He tries to negotiate for a lighter sentence if he will lead investigators to her body, but he is in fact sentenced to this life in prison. At some point, Z does tell investigators where he last saw her buried, but when they looked, she wasn't there. They found a white shirt that they thought might have been hers, and investigators believe it's possible that she could have been there and then moved at a later date. By these guys? By someone. Z ended up being up for parole in 2007, 2012, and 2017. He was denied each time and died in prison in 2021. Kay died in prison in 2015. Do we know how old these men were around the time that they would have taken Shelly? Yeah, so Kay was in his late 20s. Z was in his early 30s. So they both died kind of young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not relevant to anything, but it's just, like, interesting. Right, to think about, like, what... Like, what kind of lifestyle did they have that leads to both of them dying? Yeah. So young. So young. What is also interesting is that they had criminal records. None of them were called assaultive records, so, like, they hadn't been arrested previously for assaulting anyone. They had gotten arrested a lot for, like, drunk driving. And so some of their family members were surprised by it. Some, like, you know, people who knew them, though, would often describe both of them as being, like, odd in some way. Okay. Though with their deaths, like, the investigators are really hoping that people who may be holding back information about where Shelley could have been to come forward and finally say something. So did these men share information with anyone else? Did anyone step up? Not yet. And so when Catherine Casey interviewed Shelley's father, Ed, for her book, he said that he kept a shovel in the back of his car and that he would still stop and search fields looking for Shelley. He said he picked these spots because he would just get kind of a feeling, like a compulsion, to go look for her there. That sounds awful, and it sounds like the only thing that would help that compulsion is actually going in checking. Right. Like, it's the only thing that would probably stop his mind. From turning through that, yeah. right? Yeah. And Ed said, I'm not ready to die yet. There are still things I want to do with my life. The biggest one is that I want to find Shelley's remains. I want to bury my daughter. Edward Sykes, Shelley's dad, passed away on March 17th, 2022, at the age of 78, without ever finding his daughter. And really, I could end there, but I just wanted to have a final moment to share something about Shelley from when she was alive. After they arrested her abductors, her friend from high school told reporters that Shelley was strong. She never let anything bother her. She was a leader, always organized, and always on the ball. We always turned to each other when we needed advice. She was very understanding and caring. We are now going to listen to Amy's poem, Light Dark, read by Gus Burney. Gus is a dynamic young actress and singer-songwriter who can currently be seen in the TV series Shining Veil. She has additional roles in Dickinson, The Mist, Insatiable, Blue Bloods, Bull, Jessica Jones, Instinct, Law and Order SVU, and Chicago Med. She can currently be seen in the film Happiness for Beginners on Netflix. Her other film credits include Plan B, Giving Birth to a Butterfly, 
I'm thinking of ending things here and now, the man in the woods, a rainy day in New York, and the upcoming Asleep in My Palm. Light Dark Shelley Kathleen Sykes, 19, missing since May 24, 1986, from Galveston, Texas. Carving through the violet night, the men see shadows of the dead hiding in the cypress trees. The shadow men flick their lips and hands under canopies of foliage. They are looking for flesh. The men push the pedal down as the road dissolves into an ocean of smoke. Ahead, a girl is driving home, keeping the wheels tight to the yellow line. She reaches her hand out the window, stretches towards the ravished stars. She holds one on the tip of her finger. It doesn't burn. The girl is too busy to notice the headlights flashing up the sky, the trees, her own body. When the car hits her own, it feels less like an impact and more like an unfurling. While the men crack her open, stretch her out, she thinks of the shells on the beach near Galveston. Has she followed them in her bare feet after work because they seem like a path to a place other than one that pumps black into the sky? When the men pull her into the mud, she doesn't mind that her palms collect damp velvet and that her knees are splayed in the dark. In a field, the girl still takes in the salty dark as the men cut open the earth. Near her left eye are the bristled tufts of grass. In the distance, fireflies setting themselves on fire. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.